one of the ways to think about mindfulness practice is developing um, a heart and a mind that's able to uh, really look straight forwardly at life and uh, be able to manage it. Sometimes when people hear the first noble truth of the Buddha that life is suffering, sounds like a very dreary beginning to a religious awakening. Like uh, there's, a, there's a whole way of talking about the miraculousness of life, or the uh, extraordinariness of uh, just the fact that creation exists. I think that's the other eye of seeing, and the eye of seeing that's harder to keep open is the eye that recognizes the inevitable pain and suffering built into a life. I hadn't known until about five minutes ago that um, I would want to make this um, a gift offering, this talk, or an honoring of uh, the life of uh, Jeanette DeVries, who died two weeks ago, which I just heard about from her daughter, Karen Olmholt, who's here this morning. Um, where are you, Karen? There you are. So Karen just told me that uh, her mother died two weeks ago. Her mother was 72 years old, just so you could have a sense of her. And uh, she lived alone in Albuquerque. She was very close to Karen. And uh, Karen's two-and-a-half-year-old uh, daughter, Sasha, who uh, was adopted when she was eight months old from Ukraine. And uh, Jeanette DeVries died two weeks ago, um, really uh, as a consequence of the fact that she struggled with tremendous depression. And in fact, she took her own life, which is tremendously hard to know about. So that even when we say this is the practice that allows you to look life really straight in the eye and be able to bear it, Sometimes you can't. And to be able to uh, recognize somehow that for some people it's not holdable. And to just know that. It's possible sometimes to think otherwise. It's hard to sometimes imagine how difficult it must be not to be able, because the sense for most of us is so much that we want to get better or we want to have yet another chance and want to get up another day. And mostly it works out for people that if they are having some really terrible time in life, they're looking forward to when it's better. And often people have uh, really terrible physical illnesses for which the, the cure or the treatment is so difficult. And yet they undertake it because they want so much to come out of the other end and live some more. So sometimes it's hard to realize, but to realize really the monumental amount of pain that must be involved in that. So to really honor and respect Jeanette's life and Jeanette's decision, in fact, and um, to really uh, hold her in our hearts as we study together this morning with every good wish and every honoring both of her life and of her passion. 
necessary. So we make a dedication of it to genetic disease. And I was going to talk about how hard it is to keep the mind at all able to stay steady in its gaze when things are hard. I was thinking all day yesterday about um, what to teach about today. I was having a hard time. Normally, for, well, for one thing, I had imagined that we were all set up to have the play today, so it was rather the last minute, and usually I'm thinking about it the whole week, and I just learned yesterday, in fact, that the play wasn't happening. So, normally, I have a lot of things to say. One of the things that people know about me is that I'm hardly ever at a loss for words. <laughs> <coughs> but... Um, among other things, I got an email from a friend of mine yesterday morning, among my many emails yesterday morning, um, that just uh, clarifying some business when we would meet about something or other. And just as a kind of just a couple of sentences conducting the business on the email, and then by way of signing off said, oh yes, I'll be at home all day today fretting about the state of the world. And I thought to myself, <clears throat> we probably all are either at home or not at home yesterday, fretting about the state of the world. It's, it's probably, uh, I, I imagine for all of us, a universal worry these days. Uh, and coming up on the State of the Union last night <clears throat> speech, even my thoughts all day long about should I watch it or should I not watch it, or listen to it or not listen to it. And uh, I know from previous experience that I have a very hard time with it because there's a part of me that uh, is moved by um, the, the is moved by the ceremony. You know, I, I feel very picked up by the idea that we actually live in a democracy with elected officials that people chose, so that. Um, I, I, I find that remarkable. My, my grandparents didn't and uh, needed to emigrate to this country because they really depended on that. In a sense, democracy was their religion. They, uh, and in fact, in my life, I, I'm sure I've said this to you before, voting was a religious obligation in my family. And uh, in the days before absentee ballots, there was nothing that would have kept anyone in my family from going to the polls on election day, um, in, including you had to be really. I never knew anybody who didn't go, and uh, it is so in me a um, a religious rule that I have never not voted on the, in an election ever anywhere. I'm gone sometimes. I do that by absentee or whatever. It seems so important, and so I like the pomp of of uh, looking at the you know, the government chambers and seeing the president come in and seeing people stand up and say, "Well, we really do have this." And I really anticipated that and being a little bit lifted up by that, and then being uh, having to deal with the other thoughts that say how few people vote and what's happening to this country, and I could anticipate the other voice in my mind coming up. It was very interesting for me to think about because subsequently when I decided what was I going to do with my day to make me feel better and not spend the day at home fretting about the state of the world, 
as I decided that I would read um, some of um, uh, the vision of Dhamma by uh, uh, a man whose who's, uh, Buddhist name became Nyanapanaka. He's known as Nyanapanaka Tara. Tara is like a, a monk. It's a monk name. It's a, um, it's a, it's a uh, venerable monk name or a, a senior monk name. He was actually a Mahatara because he was actually a very senior, senior monk. And he died sometime in the last 10 years. He was 98, I think, when he died. He was born in, um, he was born in Germany sometime in the beginning of the 20th century. Around the beginning of the 20th century. He went to uh, Sri Lanka as a young man, just finished his university, interested in Buddhism. Uh, to study, he became a monk and uh, spent his whole entire life um, as a very uh, serious, thoughtful, and prolific writer, monk, eventually the head of the Buddhist Publication Society in Kandy in Sri Lanka for many years, and wrote really beautifully. You may remember a few weeks ago, I read um, uh, I read a, a uh, uh, a long uh, kind of prose poem uh, by, uh, written by Nyanapanaka about um, the meaning of the word uh, metta, the, the, in, uh, the meaning of the word love. Remember, it's a week or two ago. I won't read you all of it, but I just want to read you some of Nyanapanaka at his uh, poetic best. Talking about... Uh, that love which is out without desire to possess, knowing well that in the ultimate sense there's no possession and no possessor. This is the highest love. Love embracing all things, small and great, far and near, be it on earth, in the water, or in the air. Love embracing impartially all sentient beings, not only those who are useful, pleasing, or amusing to us, Love embracing all things, be they noble-minded or low-minded, good or evil. The noble and the good are embraced because love is flowing to them spontaneously. The low-minded and the evil-minded are included because those are the ones who are most need of love. In many of them, the seed of goodness may have died merely because warmth was lacking for its growth, because it perished from love in a loveless world. Love embracing all things, knowing well that we are all fellow wayfarers through this round of existence, that we are all overcome by the same law of suffering. Love that is a sublime nobility of heart and intellect which knows, understands, and is ready to help. Love that is strength and gives strength. This is the highest love. Love which is which by the Buddha was named the liberation of the heart, the most sublime beauty. This is the highest love. And what is the manifestation of love to show the world the path leading to the end of suffering? That's beautiful, isn't it? I, I didn't read all of it. But. And the sense, in uh, one of the reasons I like to read that so much is it's, um, it's, it's so uh, rhapsodic in a certain sense. It's so sublime. Um, and Nyanapanika, for the most part, is very um, straightforward, almost funny. Um, 
I'll read some more parts from his uh, essay on the power of mindfulness. Just to pay attention one moment at a time. The the poem that I read to you, by the way, or the, the little prose piece that I read to you, just at the end of the sitting, is from a book of poetry, haiku, called Take a Deep Breath, uh, written by Sylvia Forges Ryan and Edward Ryan, who are two long-time mindfulness practitioners, written a book of poetry, and little, well, and very wonderful descriptions of how mindfulness practice really has informed their life, might inform ours. There are just these moments, forever rising and passing away, moments into which, you remember that last sentence of what I read, an insight might arise. You think about the purpose of uh, this practice of mindfulness as we do it here together, the purpose of seeing clearly is having such an insight into the truth of how things actually are, that we are actually liberated from suffering about it. If we could really, if we understand suffering as the mind's resistance to being able to say, this is the way things are. That's really the whole, I think, of the definition of suffering. The particular word, it, it, we use it in English in a, in a, uh, in a different way. We say, uh, the suffering of poverty. And, and of course, not to diminish that we all understand what that means, or the suffering of homelessness. I really want to make a, 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 the difference between the pain of poverty, or the pain of homelessness, or the pain of loss of someone who's dear to you, or the pain of anything gone in a way that you didn't want it to go, from the notion of suffering, which would be the extra pain that the mind, unable to say, this is the way it is, brings to the situation. The Buddha would have said, it's like hurting yourself twice, like the original pain is like a stab in your heart. And if you take out the dagger that stabbed you, and then you stab yourself again by saying, this shouldn't be happening, or why me? It is happening, and it is me. And And now what? that stabbing again really stands, is, is not the compassionate response. Stabbing again is making it compounded. And to be able to say, it is me, and it is now, and it is terrible, really is what allows for the heart to respond with its own natural compassion, which is really, I think, what uh, I, I, would, I could have. I like it very much that... Uh, uh, that Nyanapanika is using love as the word for love as the response impartially to the pain of all suffering beings. But I would use interchangeably with that karuna, compassion. I don't know that there's a difference. Actually, in some ways, a compassion is, uh, for me, a more workable word because we get confused about love in terms of liking or in terms of erotic affection or connection. We don't get so confused about compassion. Sometimes we get confused about compassion, too, and we get confused about it as um, um, as not having limits 
or not setting limits, or being um, incorrectly permissive, that compassion is soft. Because compassion is appropriate. Compassion is what needs to be the necessary balm to the pain that's present. It's like compassion, I think. So I wanted to talk really about mindfulness and this process of paying attention moment to moment with the hope uh, that, or with the, with the faith, actually. Faith is actually different from hope. Faith is more waiting, I think. Hope is looking for. Do you think I just made that up? I did just make it up. Do you think it's actually accurate there? That when we are hopeful, uh, my friend Joseph used to tell a story for many years, I don't know if he's still doing it, about telling a story about having planted a garden when he was young and planting carrots and being uh, very eager to know if they were going to grow. And, uh, they, you know, carrots start to make those little beautiful filigree uh, shoots coming out the top long before the whole carrot was mature. He said he would be going out every day into his garden and pulling up the carrots to see if, you know, if they were there. And it finally uh, became clear to him that you had to wait for a long time before, because you couldn't put them back in once you pulled them out. So I think that hoping, and you know, is it happening, is it happening, is it happening, right, is different from the faith that it'll happen. You know, I can go away and do something else and come back and it'll happen. So the moment-to-moment bringing of attention So I decided to read uh, Nyanapanaka. And uh, the, the essay that I decided to reread is called The Power of Mindfulness. In a certain way, it's, uh, it's as thrilling as the poetry. I'll tell you some of the things that he said. said, mindfulness is unassuming in its character. This is so interesting to me. So it's very, it's, it's kind of a, it's a very plain. Uh, said, compared with it, mental factors such as devotion, energy, imagination, and intelligence are much more colorful. Mindfulness, on the other hand, is kind of like the unattractive uh, sibling. Mindfulness, on the other hand, is unobtrusive. But here's the great line. It's, uh, its virtue shines inwardly, and in ordinary life its merits are passed on to other faculties, which generally receive all the credit. <laughs> Isn't that dear? I mean, here's this uh, uh, overlooked capacity that's in the back doing all the real work of shining the light through all these other capacities, really lighting up intelligence or imagination, or energy, or devotion, powering them in some way. But then they get all the credit. Nobody notices who is behind the scenes actually pushing this to happen. Mindfulness, he said, walks slowly and deliberately, and its daily task is of a rather humdrum nature. And then he talks about the opening of the Satipatthana Sutta, 
this is the sole way, O oh monks. I think that, you know, actually, uh, in, uh, in the little translation that uh, Jack Cornfield and Gil Sanzal have done of uh, the part of the Satipatthana Sutta in that little portable tiny book of portable things, um, they've softened that. They've said there is a very good way, O oh friends. So first of all, it's, it's more contemporary to say, oh, friends, rather than monks. Um, but I kind of like, this is the soul way. Uh, okay, this is the soul way, friends. There's a certain kind of certainty about this. This is it. Not a very good way you might like. There's many other ways. This is the way. This is the way. And, uh, maybe it's politically incorrect to say this is the way. You want to be more ecumenical, but... This is the sole way, monks, for the purification of being, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of pain and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness, really paying attention in these four ways, which, starting today, we had the instructions for really bringing the attention to the breath, and we will, over the next several weeks, I hope, work together to um, elaborate that sutta, that particular sermon on mindfulness, and really work with it and work with our own experience. Today I'm going to ask you about your own experience as you sat. This is an interesting point. You tell me if you think this is true. He says, in normal experience, attention is directed, attention directed to any object is rarely sustained long enough for careful observation. It's followed so closely by an emotional reaction, discriminative thought, reflecting, thinking about it, and then some action. I was thinking about that when we just started to sit. You know, there's a little sound. The sound stops after a while. I wondered if the sound stopped because they listened to me talking about the sound, but... Here they are building the book room, and all of a sudden we hear sanding happening in the next room. Or we hear something that sounds like... Something like that. And um, so that's actually the bare, ex- the bare experience is... On top of that, what happens right away... I don't know what happens to me. is first of all, the feeling, oh, what's that? Uh, first, of all, first of all, you hear it. Second, well, it's not the most pleasant sound in the world. And it's noise in a quiet room, or it's sound in a quiet room. Noise is already a pejorative remark. It's sound in a quiet room. Noise is a pejorative remark, which is already suggesting that the presence of that is worse than the absence of that. And there's a certain amount of the, the mind moves away from it. It says, ah, oh, what's that? It doesn't say, ah, what's that? There's a little bit of an emotional response to it. Also, a, 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 a moment of uh, uh, trying to figure out what is it. Uh-huh. It's sanding. Oh, it's uh, rubbing. It's polishing. Maybe they're doing the walls. Maybe they're uh, doing uh, that, that kind of um, texturing of the walls on the sheetrock. Maybe that's what it is. So the, the, the ear starts to try to discriminate what is it. Actually, it doesn't matter so much what it is, if it's the walls or the bookcases or whatever, it's the same sound. But what Nyanapanaka is saying here is that in a moment, 
we very rarely stay with the the experience itself and the heart response to it or the quality or, or the truth of it, the presence or absence of it. You know, it's there and then it's not there and then it's there and then it's not there. Because we have a whole elaborative scheme worked out about it in a nanosecond, just categorizing feelings, all that. It's followed so closely, he says, with emotional reaction, discriminative thought, and purposeful action. Like, maybe if I mention this here, they have, uh, maybe they're listening in the book room to um, this on the, there, there is audio equipment in there. Maybe they're listening to me speaking. Maybe they'll hear me say this. And maybe they'll stop standing for the next hour. You know, and I'm not even actually thinking, articulating that in my mind, but I'm already doing it. So, so I really, uh, in that moment, thought about what Nanaponika had said. And it's actually not the wrong thing to have happen in our daily life. It's a really good thing that something happens, we have a perception, and we figure out what it is, and we make a decision about what to do. Mostly that serves us very well. That's how come we can locomote and do complex lives and multitask and do a lot of things and, and do them reasonably well without hurting ourselves or a lot of people most of the time. It's not a bad thing to have a, a complex brain with the capability of elaborative thought. You know, it's, we really don't want to be uh, um, um, dinosaurs with only... Uh, what uh, does Van Goldman say? Dinosaurs have only two way, two questions that the mind ever asks. Does it eat me or do I eat it? And it makes a decision towards or away based on that decision. So we have much more elaborative ways of thinking. And we want to have those elaborate ways. But I'm thinking, and not that, I'm thinking about when we have all those elaborate ways and we do them without at all having the opportunity to invest immediately and without elaboration with experiences, we miss, I think he is saying, the possibility of um, um, having those insights arise which ultimately might be really liberating. To make discriminative plans, I should do this or I could do that, are fine, and he's saying it's fine. He's saying thinking in the normal course of life is wise, fine, wonderful, helpful, good. And it might not be completely liberating. But to be liberated, you really need to see more profoundly. This is even knowing ahead, and this is not in his discourse yet, that what we really need to see is that things are temporal, that, uh, that things change. Just because the nature of form itself Having taken form, things end. That because of temporality and things changing all the time, it's impossible really to hold things, keep them in a static way. So we are really uh, continually needing to accommodate. We need to accommodate the changes in our lives, what was here and what isn't here. In our own life and in our lives and relationships with other people, Sometimes I think that the whole of the life is getting used to the fact that it isn't the same as what it used to be. Yeah. Hmm? So it used to be, you know, every time I, I, I didn't mean to say it in exactly that way, but I know that particular line in Yiddish, I remember as a response in my childhood that you would ask somebody, how are you? 
And they would say in a sweet voice, not the way they used to be. <laughs> because whatever it is, it's not the same as it used to be. <laughs> even when you're young and you're growing into your vigor, it even then isn't what it used to be. But you don't say it with the same sort of um, lament in the voice <laughs> because it's getting better. I remember there was a, 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 a health uh, in the early days of fitness, physical and mental vigor and fitness, um, oh, it was it was Bernard Mc, Bernard McFadden, I think, who said, "Every day in every way, I'm getting better and better." And I think it was in the 1930s. It was before my time, but um, I remember hearing it from my parents. That do you remember it? You know, every day in every way, I'm getting better and better. I think that's actually not true. That is, is <laughs> for the most part, there are parts of me that might be getting better, but they are not the parts that we're normally commenting on when we say, how are you? How are things? Not the way they were. Usually, they aren't the way they were. And uh, to be able to say that, and um, even wistfully, and have the heart make room for the wist, that it, it's... Um, I actually think that uh, my friend Sharon Salzberg has that wonderful expression, a heart as wide as the world, that it makes room for what's true, for the emotional response to what's true. Ah, not the way it used to be. It is wistful. Mm-hmm. But it is the way it is, to, that it can hold anything without resentment or without bitterness. At least in theory, in our lives, Maybe some of the time, more of the time. I might think about myself, what I want to do is be able to stay there more of the time. And when I'm not there, I want to be able to be kind to myself for the time that I'm not there, wait for the time that I am there. So, says Nyanapanaka, it's good to be able to do elaborative thought. But it's also the possibility of arriving at that wisdom that really liberates the heart comes through seeing exactly. It can comes from those insights that arrive into the mind that just rests without any struggle at all, which is what a moment of bare attention is. Doesn't have to take away from, doesn't have to add to, doesn't have to move towards, doesn't have to move away. That's a moment of bare attention. The mind awake and alert and poised, really. And that into those moments can arrive those insights that really do liberate the heart from clinging. He said you can do it two ways. You can do it uh, that 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 uh, cultivation of bare attention comes either through bringing the attention moment to moment to one object which is really what I invited us all to do in terms of let the attention rest on the breath, just in whatever way it manifests. By the way, were you able to do that of uh, resting in the experience of the breath and feeling what it actually was? Do you remember I said, sometimes you read instructions, and they may be just fine for some people uh, to be able to say, breathing in, breathing out, breath coming in, breath going out. Um, for myself, that's actually a true fact. Air is going in, or even breath is going in. 
But that's not what I feel. I mean, I feel it if I'm out and it's a very cold day. If I'm up in the Sierra and when the breath goes in, it's cold. Then I actually know air is going in. Mostly, if I sit here quietly, I, I know air is going in by a little vibration over here. But mostly, I feel my body move. I don't feel so much air going in and out. Do you feel air going in and out? Was it helpful to you? You can show me yes or no. <laughs> was it helpful to you to try to name what was actually happening? What was actually happening? What did you notice? What happened? What did you say to yourself? Belly rises? Erin, what did you say? I Mm-hmm. Okay, did you notice it because your belly rose and then it stopped rising, or because your chest opened and then it stopped? Or okay, but this is happening. I'm particularly rephrasing it that way, Aaron, because since you are noting about noticing um, this, then this, then this, my sense, um, and I suppose my experience as well is that what what that's the doorway to noticing this and then this and then this and then this is the spontaneous arising in a way that it hasn't arisen before of the absolute space that things change it's not about knowing something about breath it's about knowing about change this and then this and then this and then this this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. There's also, I think, at some point, the sense that might also come through that, the absolute conviction that because of this, this, which is really an understanding of karma, because of this, that. It's a haiku. The moon keeps filling until it spills itself out. Because of this, that, wow. I like that haiku. It just does. This and then that. There are two ways, Nyanaponika says, for cultivating that bare attention, just this, without the mind doing anything with it. The one is pick one object. The other is keep doing it with whatever object presents itself. This is a very important thing to say, and especially now, because we're going to start to study this mindfulness sutta. Because often people practice quite a long time, and... Uh, Still, because we often begin with the, with the instruction of let your attention rest with the breath, have the notion that there's something particular about breath, that mindfulness is about breath, um, or return to the breath. Mindfulness is about bare attention, it's about presence, about really developing a balanced poise awareness moment to moment. And the choice of breath in this practice, 
And in fact, in many contemplative practices, cross-culturally, in other religious practices, is because breath is what's always happening, so that everybody's always breathing, who's attempting to do something with their mind. So it makes a fair amount of sense, since breath, since breath is one of the things that's always happening, to use that as a focus of attention. So now I'm going to cultivate this capacity to hold the attention steadily. Nyanapanaka has already said you can hardly hold the attention for a second. It goes here or there or someplace else. So to hold it, to pick something that's always happening. So it makes a lot of sense to pick it. but And it does, in fact, build up that power to stay present in a poised and balanced way, to stay with, with the breath. But he goes on to say, and it's really important, that it's the bringing of poised attention to the moment in a sequence of moments that builds up that uh, capacity to see profoundly. So it doesn't need to stay with breath, it needs to stay present and with that intention. I, I realize, as I said profoundly, that uh, I, I, I wanted to tell you that I, I'm always so pleased we translate in English uh, the word vipassana with clear seeing most of the time, seeing clearly. And uh, I uh, read a French translation of an English language book which translated uh, uh, vipassana as seeing clearly, and it got translated as vision profonde. And I like that very much better, because seeing clearly is what happens if I wipe my glasses. But I might, I, you know, I just might see more distinctly, but I might not see with more understanding. I might not actually get it more. Visually, I would see more clearly. But whether I would viscerally or in my heart be really uh, incontrovertibly converted to um, the, the knowledge that nothing lasts, that everything changes, that this is the way it is, Someone once said to me, one of my teachers many, many years ago, said that there are, there are degrees of knowing. He said there are some people who are, uh, he's talking about gurus, he's, uh, 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 not at all in a disparaging way, he's talking about teachers who had taught him. And um, I, I think these are the, this, this comes from the Hindu tradition, these two kinds of words. That there are upagurus and satgurus. And upaguru is someone who knows something, who has some amount of knowledge. And a satguru is someone who really knows. And, and uh, I remember thinking that you could spell it with a, the, the knowing could be with a little k, and you could imagine a person over life that their k is getting bigger, you know, that you go from a lowercase k to a capital K, and that not from one day to the next, completely, but over time that that K grows. I think that that's what happens. Uh, there are all kinds of wonderful stories, of course, for people who have these decisive and complete liberating uh, experiences in one moment to the next. But for the most part, I think uh, we are all doing what Stephen Levine called a gradual awakening. I hope I am. I certainly have not done the sudden and complete awakening, so I am waiting uh, in the faith that what's happening is a, is a gradual awakening. 
And then what he, went on to, what he goes on to say, and what we'll start to talk about today, are uh, the four sources of power in that uh, uh, practice of moment-to-moment bare attention. And the first one is the one that I mentioned um, just when we started to sit together. It's that the uh, um, capacity of um, uh, tidying up the mind, or the function of it, or the... Yeah, I would, both the function and the capacity, I suppose. Let me see if I want to call it a function, because that's what you do. He calls it tidying up the mind. And there's a... Uh, I wanted to read some of this to you, because it's so beautiful. I, I actually copied this out of the book, because I liked the way he said it so well, I didn't think I could say it any better. He said, this is the function of the tidying and naming. He said, um, if anyone is not used to practicing in this way, I think I thought about it when I wrote this down. I thought, I think for for me at least, uh, at least sometimes this this following description will be true. For anyone not used to practicing in this way, if they took a look at their everyday thoughts and activities, it would be a disconcerting sight. He goes on to say, apart from a few main channels of purposeful thoughts and activities, he or she will be everywhere faced with a tangled mass of perceptions, thoughts, feelings, and casual body movements, showing a disorderliness and confusion, which he or she would certainly not tolerate in their living room. Truth to tell, I am putting in the she in there. Niana Panica has written this all in. That's full disclosure. (laughs) Furthermore, he said, uh, we would see that our thoughts behave like undisciplined disputants, constantly interrupting each other and refusing to listen to the other side's arguments. I thought about that particularly yesterday when I was thinking about should I or should I not. Even anticipating in advance of the State of the Union speech, should I watch or not watch? Well, if I watch, I'll get all excited about we live in a democracy. But, says the other side of the mind, if you watch, you'll get all irritated about the fact that not enough people exercise their right to vote. And, said another voice in the mind, if you watch, if you watch or even listen, you'll hear how choreographed the pauses are for uh, applause, and you'll be irritated at the applause at the wrong places. And back and forth, back and forth. I didn't tell you yet whether or not I listened. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, And here's the last thing that he said about that the quality of, uh, if we watched, we'd see that the mind is like undisciplined disputants. That also our average perceptions, and therefore our thoughts based on them, are often unreliable. And that is such an interesting place to think about, that we make our decisions out of unreliable perceptions made in the moment and hastily. So I, I thought I would tell you some examples about that, just quickly. So you see, I was thinking yesterday about how much we say to people sometimes, I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. Many of you know the story, because it was pivotal in my own um, understanding of uh, of the difference between pain and suffering, 
of being on retreat very early on, maybe the first um, couple of week retreat that I went on, where I was uh, both determined to sit in a cross-legged position because um, 25 years ago I was the oldest person sitting. I was 40 at that point, but um, I, was, so I was determined to sit on the floor and my knees hurt tremendously. But everybody sat on the floor in those days. So determined to sit, I thought my knee would explode. I thought I would explode. I thought I would die. I, you had the kind of thoughts where you think, if the bell does not ring now, I will die. <laughs> or my knee will explode, or I will never walk again. And passionately want for the bell to ring, and hear it ring, and have that great relief of hearing the bell ring, and open my eyes and see that the bell had not rung at all. That I completely hallucinated it. I had wanted it to ring so badly that I had manufactured the sound of the bell. So I was quite startled. I sat again. I wanted it to ring. Time went by. I heard it. Opened my eyes. Nothing. Twice I hallucinated. It was a very hot day. I was in terrible pain. I determined that I heard the bell the third time. I determined that I would not even get my hopes up that uh, that I would wait and um, make sure that it was really true. So without any hopes up, I opened my eyes, and in fact the bell had rung at this point. And people were standing up and beginning to walk out of the room and move around. And I was noticing all of that, and I realized after, you know, 15, 30 seconds, that in fact everybody was moving around and I hadn't yet moved. And in fact, my knee had not only not exploded, but it didn't hurt nearly as much as it did just before the bell rang. And it was so entirely clear to me in that moment that what I had experienced up to that time was the tension in the knee, which was painful, and the incredible amount of tension in the mind about the pain and about the fear. First of all, the mind clamps down, uh-oh, I'm in pain. How am I going to get out of this? I'm never going to get out of it. The bell's never going to ring. I was an idiot to come on this retreat. What is this going to do for me? This can't possibly help me. This is a masochistic practice. Why did I listen to all the people who said go to do this? What could possibly be the value of this? I'll never teach yoga again. This is a mess. All of that, which falls away when the bell rings, and you realize that you're going to stand up. And I realize how much fear ties a knot in the mind, and that the fear about the pain and about it not changing is what makes the difference between the pain and suffering about it. Okay, I heard it with my own eyes. Sometime later, I went to uh, do another period of practice uh, because I had uh, four children when, still at home when I began, more or less, moving in and out. Of, well, anyway, four children still that I needed to be responsible for. Couldn't go away for a very long time to practice, but I went away for some period of probably two or three weeks, and uh, with some concern about it. You know, it's a long time to go away, and anyway, not not to make it even uh, legitimate. Maybe it's, it was neurotic concern. They were fine, and they had another parent taking care of them. Let's even say it was neurotic concern. But I uh, thought a lot about. I'm on the other side of the country. What if something isn't good? And then sometimes, uh-oh, I'm sure something isn't going to be good. One, and there was, uh, outside the meditation hall, 
there was a bulletin board where there were notes for retreatants from the kitchen staff, please show up to do this job, or from whatever. And often if people got phone calls or if people had some emergency that they had to know about, there'd be a note out there for them. And we knew if someone needed us, there would be a note out there. So I had the thought, "Uh uh-oh, what if I get a note? And uh, the note, note, I'll get a note, for sure I'll get a note, and then the note will say that something grievous has happened to one of my family. And then I'll really feel guilty about having come so far to do what I personally wanted to do and what kind of mother am I and all that. (laughs) So days go by, and then I walk out of the meditation hall one day, and lo and behold, there's a note. I see the note on the bulletin board, and I think to myself, this is it, it's a bad note. So I reach out my hand to get the note, and it doesn't say Sylvia Bulletin. It says something completely else. I read it. Like it said Sylvia Bulletin. I thought it said Sylvia Bulletin. There was a note that said Sylvia Bulletin. But it didn't. I don't remember if the first word started with an S, or there was something about that note. I mean, there must have been something about maybe it had a B somewhere in it. But it was not my name to begin with. But I was so keyed to that, I'm going to see that note. So I saw some perception that led me to not only think it was me, but to have the whole thing of, aha, there it is, I knew it would happen. I'll tell you one more, just in case. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you must be relating to this. You ever seen it? Okay. Uh, to get to my house, you'd be, uh, which is out in the country, you drive over certain. You drive down this road, and then you drive over this bridge, and then you make a turn this way, then you make a turn that way. And one of the turns at a certain juncture comes around the corner where there's a certain house, and there's a dog that sits outside of that house all the time for years. That dog sitting outside of that house. I see the dog come around the corner with my husband one day, and. Um, dog is lying outside in front of the house, and uh, the owners of that house, whose car is usually outside, are not are gone. The car isn't there. And I say to my husband as we drive along, that dog doesn't look right. There's something the matter with that dog. And you see these skid marks in the road, so, and you see there's that mark over there. I'm sure that's blood in the road, and a car has skidded and hit that dog, and that's why it's lying there in that peculiar way. And it's people aren't here, so we should turn around now and go back and take care of the dog. And the dog's fine. Said, no, no, I can see the skid marks and that mark in the road, and the dog is lying there in that funny way. Let's turn around. I can't go home now because there's these people on me. So we turn around, drive back, drive into the driveway. Dog stands up, walks over. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, I, I, I looked at three. I looked at four things. Car missing skid marks in the road, some dark patch in the road, and dog lying there, and I made a bad story out of it. You know, this dog is hurt. Now, it could have been at some point, but the truth is that my mind works in that way of take whatever assembled pieces are out there and make it into a catastrophe. It just does that. It's one of the peculiar things that it does. I used to feel uh, angry about that. I used to wish I could have a mindectomy or something or trade minds with somebody else. And, you know, it's, a, you know, it's not just one of those things that you, it's not, it's not a doable thing. Actually, it happens less to me now. And uh, when it happens, I'm, I'm not angry at myself. Actually, I'm a little kind to myself. It's a bear to have a mind that does that. It's, you know, other people don't have that. Anybody here has that catastrophic mind? Yeah, yeah, a fair number of people. 
You know, when in doubt, dog lying down, mark in the road, you go back. The reason I tell you, there's one more thing that I'll tell you, because I see we're coming up to 11 o'clock. Where this has ramifications, I, I am way better off not having had the mindectomy, not that I wouldn't have if it was available, but, uh, but if I, if I am really, to the degree that I am really aware that that's a process of my mind, it's just one of the ways that it works, who knows from what, my karma, my genes, my background, my, whatever it is, I have it. It's like this. Not going to change. It actually, since I am less mad at it, since I'm less in a struggle to get rid of it, it happens less. And I'm a little kinder to myself when it happens. This is the place where it really uh, makes a difference, I think, that particular misperception and then run with the misperception. And this is, I think, in the area of interpersonal relationships where somebody says something or looks like something from which the other person infers something and then runs with the inference as if it's true um, and then responds as if the inference is true and then way later, way down after I see a lot of people saying, uh huh, uh-huh, way down the road when things have gotten really unpleasant you find that nobody actually meant that to begin with but now, of course, everybody the the the, uh, the discussion now shifts to how come you didn't trust me to begin with to think that I would have had such a thought. It has endless ramifications. Those kinds of misunderstandings. Recently, in a workshop where um, one of the rules of communication was um, needing to respond to a person who just spoke in terms in this way, and it's a little bit contrived, but it makes some amount of sense. What I heard you say was, and some little bit, you say, well, it's idiotic, but everybody heard that. But we don't always hear what that person said. We hear what we think they said, and then we respond to what we think they said, or we respond to how, what we think they looked like. So that particular, that, that was a particular way. I see a lot of people nodded. Does that make sense to you? Seems to me that this is a, a totally everyday uh, way in which we get into uh, complications in our everyday lives. Maybe I can end by saying, uh, uh, in uh, in Nyana uh, Panaka, urging people to take up this practice of really, really uh, cultivating the ability to see what's really happening. He said this quality of really, really being able to see you cannot cultivate in intermittent little periods of uh, attention. It has to be sustained. So this is on behalf of practice. And he's, and he's talking about the perils of not practicing. He said, uh, negligence produces a lot of dirt. As in a house, so in the mind. Only a very little dirt collects in a day or two. But if it goes on for many years, it will grow into a vast heap of refuse. (laughs) And somehow I found that so charming. (laughs) Is that an all right metaphor for the mind? (laughs) 
<laughs> Do you feel bad about that? Can I use that? Is that okay? <laughs> you don't tidy up every day, you get a vast heap of refuse. <laughs> So I would like, I, I wonder if you want to do this as an experiment with me. How many people here? I'm, I'm going to behave as if everybody here comes regularly, uh, even if you've just come for the first time. So you don't have, so far you are 100% here. <laughs> you could from now on be here regularly. How would you like to take up, we're coming into February. How about February being the month of really taking on the practice? I'm going to, I won't say this about how many people have a daily practice of sitting and really bringing the attention moment to moment to what's happening. How many people would like to take that up for the month of February uh, as a dedicated practice? We'll have a practice group together. We'll do that for the month of February. Maybe for the rest of your life, but let's take it on for February. And I'll teach about it every week. We'll go on with Nyanapanaka, we'll go on with the Sutta. But I really want you to do the homework at the same time so we can really have some backdrop to judge if it's happening. You want to take that on? There you go, okay. You just signed on, there you go. You have not become an accidental Buddhist. <laughs> you have become an accidental, uh, or no, an intentional practitioner of mindfulness. Shoshana, what? I'll try. I'll try to post a, a weekly reflection on the on the Yahoo group. That's a very good idea. We're getting very high tech. Maybe, maybe what I'll do. I know that the uh, I know that the uh, uh, I know that it's eleven o'clock. But uh, I, I'd like to end with just a reflection from the Ryan's from their book, Take a Deep Breath. Again, um, in response to the sad passing of Jeanette DeVries, and how do we hold in our heart, how are we able to hold in our heart, each of us, the sad passings, the sad um, happenings of our life, the things that require the ability to be here with just attention just now. It's early spring, and the branches are still bare. But we can't we can't expect blossoms, and, and we can't expect blossoms and leaves for quite a while yet. So what a surprise to find a dozen little finches landing in the trees, like little plump golden pears. Nature's preview of what is to come. The birds are there only briefly, stopping to visit. In a few moments, they're gone, moving on, and the tree is left bare again, waiting. Like the tree, the mind is empty. There's nothing there intrinsically, permanently, and independent in origin. Into the emptiness, like finches into the tree, come thoughts, feelings, judgments, sensations, intentions. You might say these experiences are migrating. They have an origin that is dependent on conditions here, there, and everywhere. 
Yet there appears to be an order to the way the experiences arise and migrate. We call this apparent order karma. Yet who can know the vastness and complexity of the workings of karma? Out of the whirlwind, in response to Job's questioning, came the response, Who are you to ask? Bring your mind to bear on this one day, this one place, this one moment, when finches fill the leafless pear tree with gold. Is your mind quiet? Is your heart open? To be moved by the beauty of just this moment? In early spring, before its time, this tree is full of pears, then all of a sudden they're gone. Can you be open like this to what passes through your mind and through your heart? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.